0: Welcome to the 60th episode of the Practical Operations Podcast. I'm Brendan Duesendorf. I'm Jack Neely. And I'm Jared Watkins. We are here to talk about the practical side of operations work. This week, we're talking again about Kubernetes. Last week, we dove into Caleb Doxy's Kubernetes article, and we decided to come back to it this week. I feel a little remiss that last week, we blew through what Kubernetes was pretty quickly. We didn't spend a lot of time kind of laying out the pieces for folks who don't know what it is already. But I know that Jared, who's actually here this week... Thank you, Jared, for coming Wait, back. who's Jared? Exactly. Um, Jared, you, you've spent a lot of time in the past looking into different scheduling engines and different kind of container orchestration frameworks and even container formats. Could you walk us through some of the the more popular ones these days?
1: Yes. And, yeah, so I was actually going to start off by saying that that Kubernetes, only in the last... I would say in the last year especially, has be, has become the leading uh, Docker scheduler uh, out there. Before then, I would have actually said it was Marathon or what's now known as DCOS, which is a project put out by Mesosphere, which runs on top of Mesos, which is yet there's yet another competing framework called Aurora as well. So anyway, I'm getting ahead of myself. So um, one of the more popular ones, like I said, was DCOS, and it and actually... When it first started, its open source name was Marathon. Uh, And then they started joining all these other smaller projects together to sort of do all these automation bits and really become a Kubernetes competitor before Kubernetes became the juggernaut that it is. Uh, And so they branded themselves as the DCOS or Data Center Operating System. And it runs on top of Mesos. Mesos is actually the scheduler bits or is the logic behind it. I tell you, I was a big fan of Marathon. Uh, when I was at a previous role, I was investigating it heavily and was, was gunning to put it into our infrastructure because I really liked how Mesos was used in that instance. I really liked how you could also put other scheduling frameworks or other frameworks all together into the same cluster and just have a huge swath of resources and Mesos figures it out. Uh, However, there is some disadvantages to that, um, mainly noisy neighbor situations and things like that. Um, Aurora is probably the, the actually, even though it's, I guess, has a little bit more branding power, especially with Twitter being behind it. In my opinion, Aurora is a much smaller project than Marathon uh, or DCOS. Twitter is the obvious, the big user behind it. I think there's a few other big companies that use it, but after that, the usage really drops off. And Aurora's got some interesting ideas, uh, especially before DCS took off. They had a few other features, namely around maintenance, where you could drain your Docker containers off of a host and put it into maintenance mode uh, easily without having to just destroy or kill your images. However, it was sort of opinionated. Uh, your Docker images had to have Python runtime inside of them, so you could run their uh, helper called Thermos, which actually does some of the launching bits and also some of the ports uh, assignments within Docker itself. So I really was not a fan of that, of it being so opinionated. There's a few other uh, scheduling engines that are kind of smaller scale uh, and aren't really, in my opinion, intended to be a huge environment. One being Nomad from HashiCorp. Hey, they like made Nomad. Deba- oh, I was about to say, they may debate me on that, but I really view Nomad as more of like a simple, I, I view it as almost like Docker Swarm, right? Where, hey, we want to get into the scheduling. We want to get some clustering up. Let's throw this out there. Nomad hasn't seen a huge feature set increase since its initial release. They've slowly been adding things, but in my opinion, it's just nowhere near what Kubernetes is. And, and as you guys rightly said last week, Kubernetes has one at this point. There is no other. Everybody is using Kubernetes at this point, or supports Kubernetes, and even Docker themselves. Because I was doing some research for this episode right before we got on, because I thought I had saw where Swarm was going to be discontinued, but it's actually not. They're they're going to continue it and support it as a first class, class citizen, just like Kubernetes. Uh, so it's interesting that even Docker themselves. Uh, have almost relented and are going to support kubernetes as a as a first class citizen. At first I was going to say you guys haven't even touched on why kubernetes probably had faced so much resistance at first but you did towards the end which is it is a beast to set up. You have numerous services that you have to run. You have to run an etcd uh, cluster as well. It's just a pain to get started. And and I mean it, you know it's a google service, it's born out of that environment, so it's going to have a lot of services to go along with it to just even run itself. But now with both Amazon and Google, uh, I'm sure Azure will probably have something to match it at some point. okay, I was about to say, I'm sure they're going to match it at some point. Everybody is going to manage your, your Kubernetes cluster for you. They run the masters. All you have to do is run the actual nodes that run the the workloads, and pay for that CPU time are those instances.
0: Yeah, this is one of the instances that I think outsourcing kind of the management is a good thing. A lot of these frameworks are notoriously complex. Even the Mesos, um, Aurora stuff that some people that I know use at work, there's a lot of care and feeding that goes into keeping the thing up, to setting up a new cluster, to, to kind of building infrastructure out. It doesn't sound as complicated as the folks who have built K8s or Kubernetes, have, who've built that up from from nothing. But there's a lot of headache and overhead that goes into running those things. And if your cloud provider is willing to abstract that for you and make your runtime relatively portable, hey, that's that's a huge win for everybody.
2: Exactly, so Jared, there was one question I had. I've been, I haven't really messed with Kubernetes much, but I've heard of it mostly because of my work with Prometheus over the last several years. And Kubernetes has definitely been around the last several years and very popular a year ago and before. What really specifically shifted in the past sort of, it feels to me like nine months that really pushed things over. Uh, the The water cooler talk at work is this has definitely shifted in the nine, last nine months to a, to a mode for a Kubernetes is is the default we should be heading to, where early this year, Kubernetes really wasn't a competitor to what folks wanted to
1: do. So I'll, in my opinion, and I can't, I guess I can't prove this, but I really think it was Amazon announcing their support to run Kubernetes uh, clusters for you uh, last year at their um, big conference. They announced that they will start. Uh, you know they'll they'll support Kubernetes completely natively because before then you had ECS and they still have ECS, but which is that was east, last November, I believe. Right that that that's their own service, but I really think it was them throwing their weight behind it. It was kind of like the the final like everybody was seeing the nod and was like, okay, if they're gonna support it, then that means I can run this there very easily because I, I think that really was the biggest hurdle was that it was a very It was really hard to get this infrastructure running and then maintaining it because you had a lot to keep going.
2: Yeah, and it fits in so well with the the cloud services that Amazon and Google and Microsoft are trying to put together. And the fact that we finally have the beginnings of some sort of standard so you can just run your application on whatever cloud provider you toss it at, that is definitely a, a winning feature.
1: Yes, and this is Cloud Foundry going right, right? (laughs) I think this is what the idea behind Cloud Foundry was originally going to be. But yeah. So talk
2: to me a little bit more about Aurora. Uh, One of the things I recently heard about Aurora is that they sent out a call asking for, basically asking for more developers on the project.
1: Yeah, and that's the reason I I said, when, when when I was first looking at them a few years back, I could tell that they were very Twitter heavy. A lot of the commits were from people who are at Twitter. There was some other co- corporations that ran it, but by and large, it was mostly a Twitter thing. I think now with the with the weight of the industry shifting to Kubernetes, there's just not a lot of companies who are going to want to commit their time to maintaining uh, Aurora. And again, it's very opinionated. Uh, you have to, if you're going to run Docker containers in Aurora, you must have the Python runtime in your Docker image. A lot of people who who use Go or other compiled software use minimal images to the point where they use like the scratch image where there's nothing else in there. Well, how it's will a they new run? Cool
2: thing to use the smallest image humanly possible.
1: Exactly. Well, and I think that's getting to the the original intent of a Docker image. Correct is is that you minimize the amount of libraries and amount of attack service that you have in an image down to what you absolutely need, and that's it. But yeah, I just I just think that Kubernetes has just stolen the thunder from everybody else and they're shifting to it. And just you have the few companies that run it internally who will try to keep it going. I wouldn't be shocked to see Twitter themselves saying we've switched over to Kubernetes. Maybe not, but it wouldn't be surprising. I, I don't think that Twitter or Google, considering their size and the footprint
0: of their installs, will easily shift or quickly shift. I mean, Google's running Borg, which is the predecessor to Kubernetes. Um, It has a lot of the similar mentalities to it, but it was uh, a Google-specific, Google internal project that, much like the way Prometheus was built off of Borgmon, um, Kubernetes is built off of the ideas of of Borg itself. And I don't think that anybody with a large enough installed base is really going to care, but for a lot of smaller, like small to mid-sized companies you want to follow where the development's the most active, and that's part of the reason that things like Mesos, I think, are going to stall out relatively quickly because new projects aren't going to come up in it. Most people who are doing startups are going to be digging into the cloud provided offerings, and Kubernetes has the mindshare now, and they've they've completely won the mindshare race at this point, to the point where everybody is talking about it, developing for it, you know, building partnerships or building building connectors from their particular runtimes or their applications on it. I think Red Hat's OpenShift, not not OpenShift, OpenStack, I always, mis- I always misspeak that, their OpenStack product currently runs Kubernetes internally. And now that IBM has picked them up, I think that there's going to be a lot of shifting internally in the IBM cloud-hosted whatever to advertise that they do Kubernetes and you can run your Kubernetes jobs inside the IBM slash Red Hat slash whatever hybrid cloud. It's coming. Right. So
2: if, as a side note for our lovely listeners, we're going to Talk about Red Hat and
0: IBM in a future episode, because OMG. Yeah, that's that's big news. Um, but we want to give it a little time to to dwell before we dig into it too deeply. So I'm going to stick a link in the show notes that it's on the Kubernetes org site, and it talks a little bit about the differences between Kubernetes itself and Borg. But we've talked a lot about Kubernetes and using projects and these things, but we haven't really gone through kind of what it is. And essentially, it's a way of deploying Docker images in a robust and like maintainable way, consistently. Um, the The part that Caleb Doxie's article that we talked about last week covers so nicely is, or the, the part that Google provides for free in from Caleb Doxie's article is the controllers. So, etcd, the etcd service for key, um, key value storage the API server that handles like interactions with Kubernetes itself. So you can add jobs and remove jobs and see how things are doing. The scheduler that manages the jobs and the tasks. And then what they kind of, they kind of call in blanket the controller managers that handles all of the API sets and the server sets and the daemon sets and kind of handles all of the other pieces that interact with the scheduler to maintain a production service. And all of that stack, that entire layer of it, Google gives you for free when you're running GCP when you're running kubernetes in GCP it's pretty awesome that they, they handle that whole layer but if you think about the way google runs their services to them that's probably a relatively small thing to run you know running an etcd service for hundreds of thousands of people is probably trivial to them
1: oh yeah at their scale
0: absolutely man i heard
2: etcd was one of the coordination layers that wasn't as good as the rest. Jared, fill me in.
1: Well, so early on, there were some issues of elections and those kind of things, uh, where basically uh, the cluster socks. would, yes, where the cluster Craft? would have issues. Also, it's limited in the in the fact that it's just a key value store. It's not something like console, which also tries to do service discovery uh, or has like a DNS server in it and things like that. So, I, I think it was early on unfairly labeled. Some of those things. Now, I mean, if you compare it to something like Zookeeper or something else, I mean, it's there's some, there's some pros and cons to both, right? But I, I think as it's matured, uh, it has gotten better.
2: But it's, it's less of a distributed file system and more of a key value store.
1: Right. And only that.
2: Now but, I'm asking myself the question, is there a difference in the two nowadays? <laughs>
0: but do one thing and do it well. Um, unlike system (laughs) D that seems to try to do everything. If you're doing a key value store, distributed key value store, that's a relative, it's still, it's a difficult problem to solve, but it's better than trying to do a distributed file system. That's the,
2: really the leading argument I hear against K8 today. And that touched on in our last episode is that it's not a Unix model animal. It doesn't do one thing and do one thing. Well,
1: Interesting. It does everything. What do you What do you think it It because it's very composable. I mean, there's I guess the composable is the wrong word. A lot of its its uh, services are broken down into individual pieces, much like the Unix model. It's just you have to run them all to run the massive service. But it's got individual pieces for the various things that it does. And then I would argue that configuration management, secret management, must go along with. Uh, your, what about load balancing? Well, that too. I mean, you need to do those things to to be a an effective scheduler. And I think that's the other reason why Kubernetes has has won out. Yeah. If you pick, I kind of agree. If you picked any of those other schedulers that I described, there was what do you do about how do you inject configuration into your Docker container? Or do you do you run Puppet when you're building the Docker container and bake in, in configuration management? How do you do secret management with those other ones? There were you know, HashiCorp would want you to use Vault here and there and there. And then Kubernetes says, no, we we have something for you that's baked in, uses the same command line structure that you use to deploy the the image. So while I understand that it is big, I think it still follows the Unix model to a degree. It has the individual services ran separately. It's just it is one massive service. Although I would argue that those services collectively must be used to provide a good scheduler for Docker containers. Preach it, Jared. I think that's the reason why I'm personally, I for the longest time, I honestly did not like Kubernetes. I thought it was too big. It was too you know, too many people were like, "Oh, we're Google size. We need something like Google." Could they make things a little more simpler? I think so, but at the same time, like I said, it does a lot for you that a lot of these other pieces don't, or a lot of tools don't. And they're really pr- hard problems to solve effectively. Configuration being the biggest one.
2: Yeah, I have to agree with you there. It's it's amazing how many people underestimate the complexity of dealing with configuration management.
1: A
0: lot of this also reminds me of the staggering complexity for a lot of folks trying to set up Red Hat's OpenStack. which has gone through several revisions, but it was composed of a dozen or more components, all of which had specific tasks but were... Never simple to understand or configure or easily dealt with. And Kubernetes seems to have fewer of them. I'm, of course, maybe misspeaking, and our dear listeners, if I am misspeaking, please let me know in the comments. But it seems to be, there seems to be fewer layers in Kubernetes you have to configure and coordinate and understand, unlike OpenStack.
2: I looked at OpenStack four, four and five years ago,
0: so it was definitely a different
2: beast. But looking at automating a, a really small data center and or a footprint within a data center and the amount of services and infrastructure you had to set up to get to the point you could run a couple of fistfuls of VMs, and that wasn't worth my time.
0: Yeah. And honestly, I think Kubernetes, if you were doing this like as a personal project, wouldn't really be worth your time if you if you had to build the master layer. If you had to do that the coordination layer, I I don't think there would be any reason to really as a, as a small environment or a small organization even as a hobbyist to look at it. But when you get it out, free. today
2: you can sign up with uh Google Cloud platform and they have a service that lets you run a uh uh GKE, uh the Google Kubernetes service. Remotely on your own infrastructure and have it be managed through the Google APIs.
0: Now that's tempting.
2: That that is you know where we've come from from you know four or five years ago when this is a bear to set up. Why do I need to set up a schedule t- for a couple of fistfuls of VMs? To the fact that click 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 download from Google, install on my machines. I've got a K8 cluster on premises, whatever on premises means.
0: <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm really curious what the price point for that is because for personal stuff, like for for truly personal things like inside my house, my winner currently is Nomad just because it is so dead simple to get running. It's a it's it's lightweight, it doesn't do a whole lot, but it works and it works pretty well. But if, if the on-prem GKE stuff was cheap enough or it was priced in the same way that the always free tier and stuff is, I would be very strongly inclined to look at it.
2: Okay, Brendan, dim the lights, lower the disco ball, and let's go into crazy land. <laughs> I have a a hankering for the BSDs occasionally because of the simplicity and stability of of what that OS offers. And sort of my pipe dream is how do you combine that stability with a modern scheduler you'd use to deploy whatever your startup is nowadays. And Nomad really is one of the few options that works out of the box on a free BSD, and it gives you that, and it gives you
0: a schedulable cluster pretty quickly. It also compiles cleanly on Raspberry Pis, and so if you have three or four Raspberry Pis laying around, you can get it up very quickly there.
1: Now, I know I said earlier, you know, what I want to talk about it. I I have actually ran Nomad before in, in the house in my small cluster, and I really do like it for that. Um and I agree. Kubernetes for a, a small cluster is probably going to be a waste of your time. Um that on-premises stuff looks very promising and interesting and I agree it, it, if it was free, uh all of the my mini cluster at the house would be converted over to GKE in a heartbeat.
0: Mostly in the in terms of like the home lab setup you're trying to build something from which you can learn work pieces on. But yeah, I would yeah.
2: I would be very I tempted like to, to buy them. more uh, Raspberry Pis. Yeah,
0: but,
2: yeah I mean, but then
1: you got to deal with the ARM architecture then.
2: Jared just has a stack of old Dell uh, 2850s. <laughs> Jared doesn't even get that joke.
1: No, I hey, look. One of my <laughs> first jobs was dealing with... 18, uh, I was having to do uh, firmware upgrades on like 18, fi, nine, uh, 1850s, 1950s, 2650s, all those. So, yeah, I know the old Dell hardware very well. <laughs> Back in the day...
0: I remember those were shiny and new and wonderful and fast.
1: Back when quad core meant quad core.
0: Yeah, dual socket or, quad core. Du- you're right. Was, dual socket was hot, quad
1: core. Right.
0: That was a that was a hot server.
1: And now you can get like 32 cores on a single one, a, a single chip and have dual or quad of those on a motherboard or dual of those, I guess I should say.
0: And then your memory controllers are unbalanced, and you have all kinds of other issues because Intel is trying to pack in these cores, and then. If certain ones are idle, you can get other ones to go faster, but not always. And then, anyway, don't you guys really appreciate the cloud now?
1: Yes and no. I I have to say I do miss I I do miss Poof, going into the machine.
2: Center. Yeah, but I I definitely feel Britain's desire to be able to build a home lab where you can experiment and and test out the technology you're working with for work, whether it's Kubernetes or compiling kernels or whatever. I think we've gotten to a place where that for system administrators operation professionals like we tend to to lean that gets really hard to do without forking out some cash for a, a local cloud provider.
0: Yeah, the thing I like about Nomad is it, it's where I got my initial practice building docker containers, building and recycling and uploading and changing and reverting and those kinds of things because it was a really low friction place to start building the container, and I liked that. That was it was, it didn't have all the other pieces that I had to go through and figure out and deal with. I could just start up a container and then rev it and then rev it and then rev it, and keep on going. I'm still learning about all the ins and outs of the way you can build Docker containers, but that's another story entirely. And now that I have my Google project hooked up to the this five dollar a month Kubernetes engine. That's becoming my deployable platform though, because it's just a it you, you push to the g c r the Google cloud re- repository where they keep their docker images, and you go from there and as much as I prefer running my tests up inside the house just from a sense of I own it and I have it and I can go poke at it if I need to, it's the cloud. I don't really need to care it's at five dollars a month sure i'll i'll five dollars a month, yeah, I can afford that. that's like two cups of coffee. Well, (laughs) for reasonable people.
2: For reasonable people, for people like Brendan. Yes. How much electricity does that machine take of yours?
0: About 35 cents a day. Really not that bad. (laughs) And no, I'm not measuring that as accurately as I should. Was not going to make the joke that you're measuring the electricity used by your coffee machine. That wraps it up for the 60th episode of the Practical Operations Podcast. I'm Brendan Diesendorf. I'm Jack Neely. And I'm Jared Watkins. Please take the time to rate the show on Overcast, Apple Podcast, or your favorite podcast directory. It is the best way for new listeners to find us. Additionally, we welcome feedback about shows we've recorded or topics you'd like us to cover. Leave us a comment on the website at operations.fm. Send us your thoughts on email, feedback at operations.fm, or use at operations.fm on Twitter. Docker will eat your soul.